That's anybody's guess Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed Fire up your pad and pencil I give you a piece of my mind In my opinionation The sun is gonna surely shine Stop all your fussing Slap on a smile Hey everybody, welcome to the Director's Club Podcast Bonus Episode Edition with your hosts, <laughs> Jim Laskowski and a laughing Patrick Rapole. Bonus Episode Edition, bruh. <laughs> hey, don't squeeze the whiz. Ah, fuck. Don't don't squeeze the juice. What is that? What, what do they say in Encino Man? <laughs> Weezing the juice. Weezing the juice. You can't wheeze the juice. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the Polly Shore cast. Um, I was thinking that for this entire bonus episode, we can just act like Jesse did in the din- dinner scene from the last episode of Breaking Bad. Since I know you're a fan. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah I, I I tweeted this before, but I do believe that. This season, as much as I I am enjoying it of Breaking Bad, I do believe it's proving me and Kurt right um, that without sort of a strong source of tension, the, the whole show seems to be floundering a little bit. It's uh, gone off the rails a bit, I will agree. Uh, no pun intended with the train heist. <laughs> but I st- I'm still with it. I still I'm finding it endlessly interesting and entertaining. Well, you yeah you you but, have five you have four seasons with those characters to carry you there. Well, f- of course, but they're... I'm, I'm I'm only saying compared to the other seasons, it's not nearly as good. Um, I'm saying that I mean I think it's better than season one just because yeah uh, all the characters have a lot more depth. But Walter White not worrying is not an interesting Walter White because it turns out he's not like a deep character. He's just some dick who he's, doesn't care about anything else. Yeah, well. That's very true. He, he sure does, he sure is resourceful. That's for sure. I don't know. Like it's he doesn't. He's completely not. He's not nearly as interesting a character. And uh, I I I'd appreciate it if Skylar would be like, you know, like she showed herself to be enterprising and kind of conniving. But mm-hmm. now that she's just sort of emotionally catatonic, it's very frustrating that every episode still needs a scene in which Walter White treats her like shit and she just stares into the middle distance. Well, there, there was a bedroom scene that was really intense, and she was getting confrontational. She was right, sort of reciprocating then, that intensity. And since then, yeah, and but then, but then right after that scene, she goes right back to just uh, being sort of not there, and it's not only disappointing for the character, but it's also not terribly interesting to watch. Yeah, I I, I think that this last episode wasn't the strongest of the season, and I sensed myself definitely feeling like, yeah, I don't know where where we're going. We, we, it feels like there is some kind of restlessness at this point, and I'm hoping that the last two episodes, you know, really pick pick thing pick things up now that we've introduced this whole other. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like it, it, keep introducing all these other elements. Now there's this whole other organization apparently that wants to buy the methylamine and. I'm assuming shit's going to go down with those guys or whatever, and I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I agree that without Gus, there is that level of tension missing from this season that I miss in general. But 
I guess it's just, you know, watching the decline continue is still compelling to watch overall. Just to see where it all winds up. Mostly Jesse is my protagonist now. I don't really give a shit about Walter. Mm -hmm. Like, they made the mistake of making him so unlikable that you don't give a shit what happens to him. Like, Like, if at this point, like, Hank started to really, like, stumble upon incriminating things i wouldn't give a shit because i want walter to fail yeah like, he's no longer someone he's no longer a he's bad not guy sympathetic at all right he's no longer a bad guy who i'm rooting for and unfortunately the person i would be rooting for skylar is like i said kind of catatonic and doing nothing hmm. well, part of me hopes that changes but we'll see so this isn't the breaking bad bonus episode but no. that's what happens when you start talking about it but we um We've been meaning to just uh, you know try and do this every now and again. It's going to be more difficult in the coming months, but hey, we uh, we wanted to uh, address some of your emails. Um, in addition to uh, a, you know sort of just co- talk about a f- couple of things that we've watched that we want to bring up. Um, really quickly here at the top of the show, I did want to you know big news this week. We uh, lost a director. That um, you know, I I grew up watching a, a few of his films, and my dad was a huge fan of of one of his films in particular, just because he was in the Navy, and I mean, w- it was an implausible movie, and it was over the top, and it was ridiculous. But uh, he he loved Top Gun, and it was just uh, it, a complete shock uh, to find out about uh, Tony Scott this it's- past weekend. It's crazy. It is. I mean, obviously, it's not like we knew him, so it's not. It's not like us saying we didn't know he's depressed really means anything. Mm-hmm. But he. But more, he doesn't seem like the kind of like. If Werner Herzog jumped off a bridge, I like <laughs> that would that would jive with my, with, with my worldview, you know. But I never thought Tony Scott to be the, uh, you know. I'm. I'm obviously again. It just shows the sort of. Uh, weird arrogance that we have where we assume we know people um, just based on the fact that they make movies with Denzel Washington or something like that. <laughs> like We don't know anything about uh, Tony Scott. and So, of course, it comes as a surprise. Yeah, and it's so weird because I know that some news was circulating about an inoperable brain tumor and all these things that turned out to be false and the fact is, you know, I mean, he he left notes and all, all these other things that, you know, but it's it's all speculatory, you know, you can't really pinpoint exactly why, you know, th- something like this happens. It's just it's it's unfortunate. It's really really upsetting to learn that, you know, no he, he's now he's no longer going to be making films, but he he certainly left a legacy behind and it's we can definitely really quickly dis- discuss a few of his films that we really, really um, appreciate, admire, go back and uh, rewatch with fond memories. And I mean, obviously, I I I know that Patrick has brought up a couple of times on this show, Crimson Tide, as being probably his best film. You would say? Oh yeah. I mean, I haven't seen all of his films, mm-hmm. but it's. I would certainly. It w- it would be very hard to top. I would be very surprised if anything in his filmography matches those scenes between uh, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. Completely um, agree. I uh I just rewatched it 
um, this past week. And again, just sort of the the opposing forces between these two incredible actors and the claustrophobic cinematography, everything, everything that I really appreciate and admire, just like the, the idea of an action movie in a tight setting like this. And, you know, it's really all about the, uh, the battle of the, these two minds together and how they're trying, you know, one wants to believe that they're right over the other and, you know, and it, and it, and it, the consequences could be disastrous just based on one tiny, you know, fraction of a of a letter of a of a documentation, and it's just it's insane to think that in general, you know, that that a war could break out based on one man's actions, um, and the way this film is directed, I mean, there's certainly, you know we come to expect later in Tony Scott's career for a lot of the sort of uh, stylistic flashiness. And, you know, there's certainly like little touches of uh, color and um, things like in the sonar room, like blue and green uh, kind of like tints in the, in, in the frame that kind of highlight the scene and differentiate the uh, specific rooms to make it their own that I really admire and appreciate. I don't think they're, um, you know, f- overbearing in, in some other films that I think he's done, but like just some of the, like the, the, just the neon highlights I think are really cool. And, you know, just the obvious stuff you come to expect in a submarine movie, just like the distinctive red coloring and specific moments and, I was just really taken with this movie all over again, and it's one of those that you can just rewatch over and over again and still get into it every single time. It doesn't, and you go back, and it's one of those movies too. Like when I rewatched Enemy of the State not too long ago, there's a lot of awesome people in this movie that I forgot were even in it. Oh yeah, Tony Tony Scott, you know, generally works with really good people. I mean, obviously, uh, I honestly. Uh, one of the most interesting things to come out of this might be uh, seeing what Denzel Washington does with his career now. Mm-hmm. Um, because for a while, it looked like that was just, it was just him and Tony. They had a good chemistry or w- for whatever reason, that was his go-to and that's what he would do. Um, but, you know, beyond that, even a horrible, horrible movie, like Taking of the Pelham 1, 2, 3, um, you know, you got James Gandolfini, uh, you got uh shit! I'm so sorry. Uh, Barton Fink, the guy who's lead in Barton Fink. Oh, uh, John Turturro. Yeah, John Turturro. Um, you know, John Travolta's having a ball in it. Like, there's he he always works with really good actors. I think I think Last Boy Scout is probably my favorite of all of Bruce Willis's like just scummy, <laughs> rough around the edges characters. He it's the scummiest and by far the roughest around the edges. Yeah, and. I mean, again, I would say that Crimson Tide is kind of Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman's movie. And I would say that uh, that Last Boy Scout is kind of Shane Black, the screenwriter's movie. But, um, you know, part of being a director is picking projects. And um, Tony Scott was always good at picking projects. And I would say um, this is something I saw tweeted by uh, Damon Howe. Uh, I hope that's how you pronounce his last name. It's H-O-U-X. Um, but... He said one of the interesting things about Tony Scott was he was one of the only directors who got more experimental as he got older. Um, yeah, that is interesting to consider. Like, like I'm not a. I mean, I'm fascinated with Domino, and I think it's. I mean, 
it's I think it's kind of a crazy, crazy ass movie. I still need to um, watch it, and I'm going to bump it up to my queue now to to I, make sure I watch it now for sure. Don't don't expect anything great, but expect just insanity. And it's just oh, he was willing to go there and to really push the idea of what a Tony Scott movie uh, looks like. Like without Tony Scott, there'd be no Michael Bay. Without um, uh, he really sort of pushed that aggressive kinetic filmmaking forward, often in hideous directions like again i think taking film one two three is one of them just a terrible horrible movie i think domino is pretty horrible too um and they're just ugly ugly films but uh i I, you have to respect someone who pushes themselves to go there yeah and i feel like unstoppable was kind of like a return to form for him i mean if there's still there's still some experimentation there's still some moments where the camera's like way too busy at when people are just talking and I'm kind of like, oh, you could have just not had the camera be that crazy in that moment. But hey, that's what he decided to do, and I'm not going to judge him for it. I just, that's just what he does. Um, you know, he he sort of experiments, a, you know, more than you'd come to expect from other filmmakers with like filters and shutter speed. And I think he just wanted to capture that sort of visceral energy that you might have on a fast speeding moving train and. Um, it was very impressive for me because I feel like uh, I, you know, it was one of those action movies where it you you were there right with those characters and the way the 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 camera moved it sort of complemented the film better than some other action movies that I've seen where it sort of detracted from it and I I was like this is this is exactly the kind of action movie where. You know, you, you, maybe you leave your brain at the door, but you're still physically into the film, and it's you know, and it had a light sense of humor, and uh, it, it was just exactly the kind of thrilling, nail-biting, intense, visceral movie that Tony Scott used to do early in his career, almost effortlessly. And you know, people uh, put True Romance in high regard, and I think that's. A movie of great moments. Uh, I think it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. I think he kind of over-directed the hell out of that screenplay, and I think it suffers from Christian Slater's performance a little bit. I don't think he's that great in it, to be honest. Uh, but you got some, again, I you want to talk about a guy who works with incredible ensembles and gets amazing character moments. Uh, true Romance God, you know, you got uh, an amazing ensemble with guys like Christopher Walken just coming in and stealing the show for one scene, and you go way back to something like The Hunger, and David Bowie would steal uh, one quick scene here and there, and it's and it, it's it's really uh, he had a remarkable career, undoubtedly, and I just um, you know, especially after seeing Unstoppable, I was actually really looking forward to more work from him, and it's uh, it really is a sad, tragic loss. Um, and that's all I could say, really. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to do the thing where someone dies and then all is forgiven. I wasn't a big fan of him, and I'm still not a big fan of him. Oh, right. No, but, I mean, uh, I there was, I definitely had issues with but he's cer- some of his movies. He's, but he's certainly a notable director who did very notable things and had a profound impact on the on pop culture so for sure for sure i just wanted to acknowledge that because everybody has and it's important to bring up on this show for sure 
Um, let's get to some emails real quick here because. Uh, Quite a few in response to our um, inquiry for our la- from our last bonus episode, the um, when we discussed the five films that changed our lives. Um, I'll read a few of these. I may not read uh, entire in the emails in their entirety, but I will definitely acknowledge the uh, the titles and sort of give the overall gist of what everybody has uh, brought up here. But. Um, our reliable contributor here, Robert Reinecke, wrote in to, to give us his top five here. Uh, number one was Frankenstein. He says, uh, I must have been about seven when I first saw Frankenstein. And uh, it was his first introduction to those universal films, and it directly led to his appreciation of black and white movies, and it made the jump to appreciating silent films much easier. Number two, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a good choice. Number three, Blade Runner. Number four, this would also kind of be in my list as well, but Blue Velvet. And number five is uh, Kurosawa's Ron. A film I really need to catch up with. That's something that I uh, am ashamed to say that I have yet to see. Have you seen that one, Patrick? I haven't seen most Kurosawa. Yeah. Rashomon, Rashomon Yojimbo, Seventh Samurai. Same here. Uh, yeah, those are the three it. I've seen. Yeah. I need to, uh, need to catch up on a lot. Thanks, Robert. That's a really good top five, and uh, i got to bump up on my Kurosawa, too. Um, another really uh, interesting email, because uh, it's from uh, one of our younger listeners here, uh, Thomas. Thomas uh, Wishloff, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Wee Baby Thomas. Yeah. Thomas the Tank Engine. That's your new name, Thomas. Wee Baby Thomas. (laughs) It's good to get a a younger perspective here. These are the five movies that changed his life. And it's good that toddlers have learned how to type and listen to podcasts. (laughs) At what point does this stop becoming endearing and start becoming insulting? I probably already passed it. Anyway, could be becoming ahead. creepy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> number one is Memento. Yay! Excellent choice there. This was the. Oh, it's, oh wait, wait, wait! Before we go around to all people, excellent choices. Like this is films that changed their lives. It's not like they chose it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just get excited. What can I say? Ex- I can't contain my excitement. Excellent, excellent choice. Like the choice to watch the movie was the only choice. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I don't. Mean I will. I will, I will restrain myself. No, it's okay. And I know. And I know. We baby Thomas did not feel the same way. Either. Mm-hmm. I know he didn't want to take the wind out of your sails. Right. Yeah. I'm just throwing just throwing my two cents in there here and there. But uh, number two is Spirited Away. Number three is Dr. Strangelove. Mm. Number four is Hoosiers. And number five is Magnolia. Did he include reasons? 
Um, yeah. Would you like to hear one in particular? Yes. I don't know if this episode is going to be interesting if we don't. Uh, I mean, obviously we can't go through all of them, but surely we got to pick some of them to read. Yeah, no, absolutely. We can definitely do that. Um, I am curious about Dr. Strangelove coming from um, one of our younger listeners for sure, but he says for that one, this is the first of two films that my dad gave me on this list. One Christmas while I was becoming uh, a cinephile, my dad gave me a a film that he had watched on Turner Classic. This movie left me in stitches. I didn't really understand any of the satire, but it was my first taste of Kubrick and dark comedy. I specifically remember loving the scene where Dr. Strangelove tries to abstain from giving the Nazi salute. This film gave me the love of comedy and taught me that my favorite humor is not slapstick, but rather the snarky... Su- <laughs> the snarky, subtle British style humor and moronity. Moronity is that a word? Moronity. Oh, guess- the manatee! Remember the manatee <laughs> scene, Doctor Strange? <laughs> I guess it could be. Um, I know what he says: the, the the tendency to act like a moron. <laughs> yeah, no, but, definitely. But, but I, don't, I like I that don't word. Think actually, I don't think there's actually a word for it. I think he that's he had to invent that. Yeah. So good on you, wee baby Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting choice: uh, the Hoosiers. What a what a really um, great sports movie that I uh, I'm really fond of, mostly for uh, uh, great great performances for Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper. But uh, he says that this is another film that his dad introduced him to. Uh, specifically, it was a nine-hour drive to Kelowna, British Columbia, and my dad thought I needed something to do. So after I watched this movie, and after it was over, I watched it again and again and again. It was like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom for Patrick. And I've seen it so many times that I can quote the entire film. This film today stands as a memory of the fun times that me and my dad had in our adventures. Plus, I love the speech where Coach Dale says, if we perform to the best of our abilities, then in my book, we're going to be winners. Yeah. It's That's a good inspirational a, movie. I, I had a similar experience um, growing up because we'd always go up to New Jersey and we had a, a television with a, the plugged in the cigarette lighter that had a built-in VCR. Um, and I would watch uh, tapes of, let's see, Men in Black, Independence Day, uh, The Lost World, um, and Toy Story, and I would watch those, and we would just see the same movies year after year, over and over and over again. So, uh, mm. you know, when you've seen a movie so many times, you develop that thing where you don't only you not only memorize every line of dialogue, you memorize every sound effect. Yeah, yeah. It was it, I, those movies. I'm kind of like that. I'm probably like that with Ghostbusters. I think, mm-hmm. like, it's not a movie that I that would <laughs> definitely I wouldn't say changed my life, but I feel like. It was also something I think I might have even just had on the background if I was staying at home sick, you know, and just, it was on, just to have it on. It was almost like comfort soup, you know, <laughs> just to just, yeah. you know. It was Which is v- my favorite kind of soup. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, you got to go to a farmer's market, though, to get some good comfort. Otherwise, the stuff you find at the store is just not fresh comfort. Yeah, it's... Unless you just want to get some southern comfort, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, that's a different kind of soup. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. 
Hey, 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 Jim. This is where we turn into. <laughs> this is where we turn into Doctor John. Can we uh, can we turn into the commercials that changed our life? <laughs> oh no. We'll do our own separate bonus episode of the commercials that changed our life, starting with Schmidt's gay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's uh, go on. We got uh, from Sean Pontau. Um, I got, I'm just going to do these in obnoxious a- accents from now on. Well, the, here we just have a list, but he did okay. he did uh, summarize with a quick little paragraph overall. But uh, he says. The top five films that turn him into a fan. Number one, La Dolce Vita. Number two, The Princess Bride. Number three, sorry Patrick, but Breathless by Godard. Number four, Badlands. And number five, Mulholland Drive. He says, I'd say my childhood favorites are a bit fuzzy outside of Ghostbusters and Princess Bride. But seeing Badlands at the age of 16 pretty much changed my life, and I instantly became a crazy movie movie fan. Thanks for the great podcast, guys. That's pretty much it from Sean. Badlands, great choice, man. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> yeah. God. Well, I do think everyone, if you have not seen Badlands, choose to see Badlands. I understand it's, it's one of those films that it's, I think it's out of print. And unfortunately, I think even the DVD transfer that does exist is kind of shit. But it's one of the most incredible movies ever. Hmm. Oh, one of our biggest fans, of course, contributed a a quick email with just like a one-sentence summation of his choices as well. Uh, Jason Weinberg. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, appropriately enough, I'm glad that he included uh, one film from this director because... uh, for a little bit later when I want to talk about uh, another movie by this director. Uh, I really want to bring it up with you, Patrick. For the first movie on his list from Jason Weinberg, we have The Player. He says, Not Altman's best, but it got me stupidly into film, and I also saw Get Shorty around the same time for the... and it got, once again, it got me into the film for the same reasons. Interesting. Rio Bravo, which was, oddly enough, uh, he says, which was also my dad's favorite, Quentin's favorite, and a movie that has a close family tie for me, too. Also on his list, Carrie. You guys said it best on the De Palma episode, and it's also my favorite horror film. Jurassic Park. um, By the way, Carrie is also Edgar Wright's favorite horror film. Oh, hmm. unless it's changed. But when I was when I was in line at an autograph signing once, so the person in front of me asked him what his favorite horror movie was, and he said Carrie. Hmm. So I hope you gave him the big old thumbs up for that. C- circa two thousand eight, that was Edgar Wright's favorite horror movie. Hmm. Good, 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 good. Yeah, on Jason's list here, we also have Jurassic Park, which he says was the first big spectacle that he adored when uh, he was in high school. And last but not least, Kill Bill. And he uh, says, am I insane for thinking this is the best Tarantino film? Question mark. It depends on how you, I mean, you said best, not favorite. So, I mean, surely you must have reasons why you think it's better, but I don't see them. Yeah. 
I mean, is he talking about Kill Bill Volume One and Two together? That's true. Th- That's true. Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't agree either way. But right, I certainly wouldn't agree that Volume One is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's know. interesting. It's been a while since it's been a while since I watched. I'm not. A, I'm not a huge fan of them, especially Part Two. Right, I agree. It's. It's interesting, though, that we're reading these lists around the same time that that sight and sound list has been making the rounds everywhere on blogs and people have been bringing it up. And I was pretty shocked, more so than the uh, inclusion of Avatar and Michael Mann's list, but Quentin Tarantino, and in fact, the, the fact that Jason here mentions that Rio Bravo is Quentin's favorite movie, um, Quentin did not put Rio Bravo on his top ten favorite movies on this particularly uh, this most recent updated list of his favorite movies for i guess like sight and sound branched out and did like a you know a list from each director that contributed um like blowout wasn't on there and rio bravo wasn't on there and those were like the two films when quentin first broke out onto the scene I just remember him always citing those and always being on lists of his all-time favorite movies, and I've been saying that for a long time. To see like an updated list from him not including those movies was kind of a surprise for me, to be honest. Well, Sight and Sound is also more about curating than it is just about personal favorites, mm-hmm. um, which is why you're not going to see so many out there. You're not going to see Ghostbusters as much because it's not about what movies you love the most. It's about what you feel are the greatest film achievements of all time. So it's possible that um, Quentin left them off because he, what he would pick for a sight and sound list would be different than what he would pick that's, for, say, that's when, very a website asks him, when a website asks him what his favorite movies are. Well, then how do you explain the director of Martha Marcy May Marlene putting the Goonies on his list? Hmm? Maybe he likes Baby Ruth. Baby Ruth? That was bad. That's more like Yoda. That was pretty bad. Well, with that, um, that about concludes our uh, mailbag segment, I guess. Um, thanks, everybody, for your contributions. We really appreciate the uh, number of emails we got there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we got, we've gotten a few more, <clears throat> you know, suggestions and stuff for... For bonus episodes and uh, directors we we may or may not cover in the future. And, you know, there's so many directors out there. It's going to be... We, we hope we can continue to keep doing this for the long haul. And, you know, there's certainly uh, plans to consider the bigger names. We got, like, a like a question on Tumblr about, like, when are you going to get to Fellini and Hitchcock and Billy Wilder? And, like, that's going to happen. We'll get there. We promise. Those are also big names and with huge filmographies that, um, you know, there's certainly a lot to consider with those directors and down the line. And we want to get the right guests on board. And we don't want to fuck it up. Yeah, we want to be really polished and really good at this. And you know, hopefully by that time, you know, we'll you know maybe I'll even be done with school and can dedicate even more time to the show. So that'll be nice. Maybe give us a couple more years and we'll be ready to roll for even more, uh, you know, lengthy discussions on those bigger names. But we got, we got quite a few, uh, good directors to look forward to. I, I, I would think. And, 
As always, you can send uh, your thoughts and comments to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, why don't we just, um, you know, because a couple of the uh, suggestions were, in fact, hey, we'd like to hear, you know, a couple of other sort of uh, discussions on other things that we've watched since we're sort of limited on the actual show that we do, you know, with the directors. We only talk about one title. So I thought I'd bring up a couple of uh, recent movies that I've seen that I wanted to discuss with Patrick in particular. And, uh, you know, just two, in, you know, for, for now. And then, Patrick, if you have anything that you'd want to bring up real quick, we can just sort of do our uh, What We Watch segment for this bonus episode. not a Robert Altman expert by any stretch of the imagination and uh, I think the time I officially became a fan as much as I love McCabe and Mrs. Miller and and, uh, and Nashville uh, I, I, I really became enamored with him with three women I think it was just something that just just hit the hit me at the right place at the right time I was just um, Something it it felt like the the right movie for me in particular. I don't know. It's it's something that I felt like. Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted from a movie. Uh, and I I I think that now I know what I'm in for when it comes to Robert Altman. And in, in in particular, I want to go back and rewatch McCabe and Mrs. Miller in Nashville. And uh, I was I had the the pleasure to. Check out on Netflix Instant here in the U.S. If you, I, I highly encourage you to check out Robert Altman's *The Long Goodbye*, starring Elliot Gould. So let me get this straight, Patrick: Is Robert Altman just like this defiant filmmaker? He, he does he like intentionally set out to turn a genre on like onto its ear each and every time. <laughs> I think that's just he makes a Robert Altman movie, but that happens, but that doesn't happen to fit in any genre. Okay, um, he means too much. Uh, I think in general, the one sort of defining characteristic of a genre movie is that it's all about the kind of stories that are being told, and it's all about, um, and it's all about stylistic choices. And I think Robert Altman's sort of the anti version of that because he's all about characters and he's all about the humanity as opposed to the plot, and he. Um, and his films, while have a very distinct style, they are not, you know, they're definitely not horror, they're definitely not noir, they're definitely not, you know, kinetic mm-hmm. action. And this um, is definitely very, not a traditional sort of Raymond Chandler detective movie. Right. I mean, all of, uh, yeah, all of his Altman's films have sort of a heavy haze of pot smoke <laughs> yeah. around them, with especially with the pacing. Uh, I love the fact that the first... Uh, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I do think it's like the first ten minutes of the movie are just about him buying cat food. I know. I couldn't believe uh, it. I just and, he, <sighs> and yet, and he does some clever storytelling things where uh, <laughs> I, I think one of my favorite ways to get across exposition is in a non sequitur. Um, mm-hmm. And when the naked sort of hippie tribune that lives next door <laughs> mm-hmm. to uh, Marlo is that Marlo? What's yeah? Okay. The Tribune that lives next door to Marlowe 
asks him to pick up some cake mix or whatever for them, and they go, you're the nicest neighbor. He just sort of mumbles to himself, yeah. I have to be the nicest neighbor. I'm a private eye. <laughs> like, there's no reason for him to say that, but at the same time, you completely buy that he says that because the character's so out of it. And I love when stuff that could just be a non sequitur is actually exposition. Um but yeah, yeah, he love- does that. He d- he does that very well, and so, like his ca- the camera like kind of roams in and out, around and above characters, and sometimes yeah, like it's that- seemingly seemingly without purpose at times. Well, it's just about I I mean the the whole purpose is to make it feel like the environment is swallowing the characters. Mm. It's not necessarily each scene the camera moving. You know, like the the th- the scene where. He's talking to the guy on the beach. It's been a while since I've seen it, so the exact details. And like I said, uh, Robert Altman's not always con- concerned with plot, so the plot details are definitely not clear to me at the moment. Uh, I don't remember them. But They're not the emphasis the on, of the movie at all. Right? right, when he's talking to the beach and the camera just sort of... I can't remember if it lingers into the surf or it just sort of... Yeah. It, but the camera moves past them. It's more. It's more about creating a feeling where these people are lost in a world as opposed to... Um, as opposed to eat, you know, it's a, it's about creating a general tone of the film. Um, but at the same time, you know, as lackadaisical it could be, it's also like the scene where the uh, mobster um, <laughs> mutilates the, you know, the woman like that. It can be shockingly violent and like really intense. I know um, it comes out of nowhere, and you just don't expect that. It, it almost like the it, it like it's so jarring. It kind of in, in almost like in the same way that the I mean. In a movie like Drive, you kind of expect some sort of shocking, visceral, violent response in that world that's being created. But whereas here, it's like it really is shocking too. Uh, I, and I think I think McCabe and Mrs. Miller plays a similar game where mm-hmm. McCabe, when McCabe is being hunted, that that you know, obviously, like yeah. I said, like you don't think of Robert Altman as filming action scenes or you know doing thrillers, but that whole scene's incredibly tense just because. Um, Altman has spent so much time establishing all these characters and all of the ramifications and all of the real world that when we finally get to the scene where he's being hunted down and hiding in different buildings and stuff, it's it's just as tense as you know the the hotel shootout in No Country for Old Men or any other things that I would consider like the greatest action scenes of all time. I just almost feel like he chooses to kind of ignore conventions and expectations in a way that it made it made me feel like I was watching a movie in a way that felt really new and. And because you know, I mean, even the way Elliot Gould Gould plays this character, it's almost like he just shrugs at life, and oh, that's just okay with me. <laughs> you know, everything is just like, oh, that's whatever. Everything you know, and he's kind of like, um, I, I wouldn't say indifferent to things, but he's it, it's I, if if it is indifference, it's almost played comedically, you know, and I I, I would say. Like the Coen Brothers' view of Los Angeles is vastly different than Altman's, but I I, I feel like that the Big Lebowski sort of Chandler esque storyline feels inspired by kind of what Altman chose to do with this world. You know, I mean, like there's just certain hints of like there's there's this, the scene on the beach where it almost it I almost wonder if it was partially improvised because I. F- it's one of my favorite drunk scenes too. It's a, it's a fair it's a fair assumption that most Robert Altman films are at least partially improvised. Cuz just the way like the the dialogue flows together with and el- the way Elliot Gould plays the, plays that scene it's 
Are you are you, are you lying about your husband? Do you do you really do you really think he killed Sylvia Lennox? And, and then and then he goes like telling the co- cops off and like screaming at them. And I don't know, man. Like that, it feels so organic and it's jarring and how organic it is. It's just it's something that I'm not used to seeing in a movie in the same way that like the moments in Three Women. I'm not used to seeing it play out that way. Uh, and, and, and again, I mean, we both have seen the master. There are certain moments where I'm so taken aback that I'm almost like, wow, I can't believe that this is a part of this movie world, you know? And yeah, it's just kind of like hard to process, but I'm so grateful that somebody has the audacity to present that to us and allow us to, you know, be able to say, hey, we're going to throw this at you. Here's what, you know, we're not going to even tell you what it, precisely it means. Just go with it. And, and I, I, mean, I like that approach a lot. And to be fair, I mean, obviously, Robert Altman's not the only person doing this in the 70s. Um, sure. Uh, you know, but Robert Altman definitely was probably the most, uh, I don't think he really ever chased money. Like, it got to a certain point where the like he worked consistently, but it got and it got, and he never had a feeling where he wanted to make a big movie. He wanted to spend a lot of money. Where you get a lot of these directors in the seventies, so you you know, uh, we're gonna be talking about Freak and later. Like, like uh, I think Exorcist, like the budget, like ended up twice as much as it was supposed to be, maybe even more, just because the the sort of oh the directors are running the show feeling of the seventies led these people to sort of become me- megalomaniacs at times and. Like Altman definitely was no less a megalomaniac because you don't make films this unique and this personal without having to shout at every producer um, who goes, hey, maybe we should not have all the dialogue be mumbled and maybe we should not have a thousand conversations going at once. But um, you get the you get the feeling that he never tried to be anything other than Altman. And I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. And also, I think the other thing is you always think of uh, sort of technical innovators as someone like Spielberg or someone, anyone who makes movies, a lot of special effects. But Rob Altman innovated a way of recording sound and a way of shooting movies. Yeah. Um, uh, he shot, you know, MASH and a lot of his later films. You can tell they're all shot with a you know, very long telephoto lens. And that's because he didn't want the actors to be as aware of the camera um, or when it was on them. So he would mic all the actors, and then he just in editing he would uh, he would um, just sort of fade in, conversations in and out, and so like he did a lot of technically sort of dazzling things as well, um, and he and uh, he did it in the best way possible, which is he did it to serve the story as opposed to um, he did it because he wanted to make another Star Wars or something like that. Mm-hmm. The only thing I, I've uh I've read online is in regards to the the very end that uh, it sort of uh, betrays the book and the overall uh, sort of Marlowe mythology because his character wouldn't respond in that way. He wouldn't, uh, you know, sort of exact out revenge and have that sort of uh, violent nature about him. And uh, it was sort of, like, again, sort of like an act of defiance on uh, Altman's part to have Marlowe you know, shoot the guy at the end and sort of, again, have that uh, lackadaisical, uh, you know, 
the final line of, and I did, and I even lost my cat, and just shoots the guy. Uh, and I was again, again, there's so many moments where I'm taken aback, and even even something like subtle where the the um, the the mobsters uh, where they get their money back, it is played almost like oh whatever, no big deal. Like it's almost done in the background where you know something else is happening in the room and uh we're like that's just what i mean it's like the the camera chooses to stay in one area or one scene where you expect it to be in the other area or the other scene it's just his choices seem to be completely unexpected and never in a way that i find off-putting in fact i find it endearing like just to have that choice i never feel like it's doing it to be uh um you know uh just kind of like just to do it just to be weird well i I, and i think the fact that he has such a singular vision helps that because yeah um it never feels like he's doing something surprising to surprise you it feels it just feels correct Mm -hmm. um and i mean he's got confidence in his choices i think the whole yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I was I was just saying he's got confidence in, in the choices he makes. I think. Yeah. No. Ab- yeah. Absolute confidence. And again, to to make those kind of films that are so weird and and small and makes and say take such risks. You know, when he made Mash, uh, people weren't. You know, people didn't make war movies where all the uniforms were dirty. Um, people were complaining about how how dirty everything looked, and he goes, "Well, yeah, it's war." Um, and that actually Patton, I think, was filming around the same time at, at Fox. And they actually went back to Patton and made all the uniforms more dirty in Patton. Like you you can't no, you can't uh, make a film that strange without having a strong vision and without having strong sort of integrity to uphold it. Um, and I think the general feeling, I think the other good thing about Altman is he's uh, especially in the 70s. Uh, he is very in tune with what was going on i mean he was 40 years old when he made uh mash but he was still pretty like he was still a big countercultural kind of hippie guy mm-hmm. so and i think that i think that the long goodbye feels like a movie from 1973 i think it feels yeah. a little defeated i think it feels a little hungover um <laughs> but you know that's, a good, the that's 60s. a good word to describe it uh i think i think a, a lot of altman's movies uh feel a little hungover and i think I think one of the best ways to f- watch them, and it was the first way I saw Matt. First time I ever saw Mash, I saw it this way. First time I ever saw McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I saw it this way. I think the same with Brewster McCloud is to watch them really late at night, um, um, and just sort of, you know, put it on with the understanding of I'm going to watch this and then I'm going to go right to sleep. And it's because his films sort of have that great sleepy feel to them. That's exactly how I watched The Long Goodbye, <laughs> and that was yeah, and that's worked beautifully, and it's could be one of yeah. my new favorite movies and now it's it's and maybe that is exactly how i watch three women too <laughs> so maybe yeah, that's was, that is was, the perfect way to do it i was about to say i hope some you know kids saw three women on tcm or something or images or or brewster mcleod on you know tcm at you know 11 o'clock at night and that just changed their life because it he does make the kind of movies that once you see them, you are your mind opens to. Oh, there's a whole fucking other way to do this. Um, yeah, that for I, sure. I can I, mean, I can I, just imagine a young Paul Thomas Anderson seeing these movies 
Absolutely. Um, you know, and Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, even though, you know, his latest film, The Master and There Will Be Blood, they're kind of colder movies. Um, he is very invested in the characters uh, and he's very invested in the performances not feeling like the performances being uh, very spontaneous and, you know, being very alive on screen and not completely controlled and not, you know, uh, Fincher or Kubrick-esque in the thousands of takes in order to flatten out a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's... No, I, th- I was about to say, and other than, I think the obvious thing everyone takes, connects uh, PTA to uh, Altman is to say, oh, he did the sort of movies like Magnolia's very much like Shortcuts in Nashville, and he also, you know, he has the big uh, casts of characters and like Boogie Nights, but I think that sort of heart and that sort of um, wanting to catch these characters in these little moments is also... Uh, something he got from Altman makes complete sense to me. Um, you know, speaking of which, talk about uh, a movie that feels really alive, and uh, you know, we we've uh, not to give anything away, of course, after uh, having seen the master, but uh, there is definitely one sequence, one moment that will probably stick with me for forever. Uh, there's um, a moment in this movie last summer involving a truth game. Uh, the, the the 1969 film last yes, summer. Yes, the 1969 film last summer um, in which character Catherine Burns has an extended monologue. Oh, man. <laughs> that it's, it's something that uh, just tore me apart and her performance, I, I believe it was Oscar nominated. Um, it was just unreal. This whole movie tore me up and it was really, it felt exactly like that time in your adolescence where things feel completely fragile and, uh, desperate and, uh, <laughs> like aimless and impulsive and weird and messy. And you make these, uh, you know, sort of random friendships that get really intense and you kind of don't know what to do when they, you know, they they tend to get uh, physical. And, man, it's, you know, I mean, obviously I never had these kinds of relationships that, you know, take place on a beach house or whatever, but I certainly related to the plight of each character in different instances throughout uh you know even some of their more cruel nature i could uh empathize with and you know that's 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 that time uh, when you are sort of lost in yourself you're 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 lost in selfishness and you're you're kind of discovering your the power of your own sexuality, the power of your, and the confusing times that all plays into. And this movie had like a kind of like a Lord of the Flies quality to it, without that sort of uh, it was more intimate version of that uh, intimate world, you know, just like that that sort of gothic menace of adolescence of how you know you can sort of make these connections but they can also 
be easily broken apart within, you know, one act of cruelty. So, I mean, it's called Last Summer. It could also be called Cruel Summer. Um, and, you know, it's it's really one of the absolute I, <laughs> best films I have ever seen. I, I, I agree, I, but I am thinking now of a Bruno Mattei uh, <laughs> ripoff. <laughs> of last summer yeah because uh when he ripped off jaws he called it cruel jaws <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh that would be wonderful man i can't tell you like the climax of this movie how uh talk about a punch to the gut like just everything this is, I mean, again, this is a um, one of those really hard to find movies that demands like a Criterion re-release. Uh, it, it it must be seen. It is so intense and so real and so beautiful, so well acted. Um, I mean, it's I wouldn't say it's necessarily naturalistic acting, but it's also just it feels like appropriated for that for that time period. The, the you know that just sort of impulsive nature of these of these three characters um and just you know the outsider coming into this world and how you know how perfect she is in that in that role she's just exactly you you know somebody like that and you know these people you 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 know it's like i i felt like this was exactly um you know pitch perfect to my experience despite you know the environmental uh you know i never really had that sort of summer experience on a beach with all these people it's more of just the you know explorations of friendship and love and sexuality kind of getting intertwined in a very haphazard way that i completely this movie consumed me way to go patrick (laughs) thank you Thank you. Well, thank again, you, it was you. a movie. It was a movie I caught on uh, Turner Classic Movies at like eleven o'clock at night, um, and uh, yeah, it's insane. It's pretty. Yeah, like like I said before, it's every major emotion you have as an adolescent on yes. screen, um, and it, but it's all the emotions playing themselves out against each other. Uh, so it's it's just fascinating to watch. I'm really excited to watch to see if the rest of Frank Perry's work, if any of it um, matches up to this, uh, Frank Perry. I mean, most famously did Mommy Dearest, mm. but uh, uh, The Swimmer, Diary of a Mad Housewife, uh, Play It As It Lays, you know, so I want to check these out because uh, if, if any of them are close to as good as last summer, then they're going to be excellent. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty much it for me. I mean, I did, you know, I did finally catch up with Margaret, and again, I'm feeling torn about it. It's one of those, uh, I kind of want to watch it again, and I kind of want to watch the extended version of it, because it got so much praise from people that I respect and admire. And I love the director's first movie so much, uh, You Can Count On Me. This is Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret, which you know had the big push from Twitter and all sorts of uh, different movie blogs campaigning for it because it got buried last year and got all this critical praise and Anna Paquin is very good in this movie I just um, 
you know, felt like the editing flaws were there in the cut that I saw. But this is also the same cut that, uh, you know, everybody put on their top ten list last year. Um, so I think it's a movie that I really hope that upon a rewatch, you know, I'll, I'll be able to s- let it sink in a little bit more and be able to talk about more, uh, you know, at some point in the future because I think it's worth discussing. There's a lot going on in this movie, and it's certainly an interesting post-9-11 movie as well. So I think you should check it out when you have some time, Patrick. It's it's really worth a, a, a look because it's, yeah. it's flawed, but its flaws are interesting. The, yeah, the real problem will just be finding the time. Sure. Um, I've been watching season one of X-Files, though. Oh, cool. Good for you. Speaking, I would love to it, yeah, rewatch that. Speaking of mind-blowing cinema, the first season of X-Files which I think is actually just a documentary of early nineties Vancouver fashion. Um, so many, so many jean, so many jean jackets, so many jean vests, um, so many, so many scully suits that look wretched. I bet uh, a lot before. of people, once they heard the rumors of a uh, real life romance between Scully and Mulder, they're all going to start rewatching it and jerking it. Yeah. You think they're going to start jerking it? Maybe. You think? Uh, you think? Uh, do you think someone out there has a Eugene Tombs fetish? They just like <laughs> seeing men. They like seeing men squeeze through grates, and they're just like, "Oh God, yeah, <laughs> eat, eat that fucking liver." <laughs> liver alone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, liver alone. Matthew Lillard scream. Very good. Um, I- <laughs> It's yeah, getting late. No, it's I. I've never watched X Files all the way through. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen every episode from like season three to season seven, um, but because at that point I already couldn't keep up with the mythology, I pretty much just watched the Monster of the Week, which makes sense anyway because the Monster of the Week episodes are better. Um, the mythology, you know, just the Monster of the Week are just better written. But did you just say monthology, of- like combining the word monster and mythology? No. I oh wow! No. Okay, because I thought that was pretty cool. No, <laughs> monthology. I like that. Would that. Be pretty. That would be pretty cool of me. Um, <laughs> no, I. The the thing I will say about season one is it was before they learned that that they didn't have a budget to make things scary because later, like, they never really had a great budget on X Files. They the budget definitely got a lot bigger, especially after the movie came out and they mm-hmm. moved to the production of California. But like the makeup effects and everything were never the reason to watch it. Um, but the first season, so, so what would happen is later on, they would realize, Oh, we need to give all these monsters personalities and we need to give this episode a specific tone. And we need to further the relationship between Mulder and Scully. We need to do anything to distract from the fact that all of the shots of the werewolf attacking are just like sped up footage of a shadow hitting another shadow. And it looks horrible and it's not scary, but they didn't realize that in the first, first season. So, Hmm. It'll be like kind of an interesting episode where they're on an Indian reservation and they're like they're investigating a Manitou, but then it would get to the actual scare moment and it's this like horrible um, early '90s CGI where they didn't even render it in 24 uh. frames. Like it's still rendered 60 frames per second, so it just everything moves too fluid and too fast. And there's like an episode with translucent like flesh-eating bugs. Uh-oh, uh oh, it's not like the Langoliers, is it? No, no, no. It's they're just like kind of iridescent. Uh, glowing not translucent iridescent glowing bugs and it's literally just like green static that they 
it looks like a doctor like a doctor who episode from the 80s or something footnote so, we should uh, do a bonus episode on the langoliers we should do a bonus episode on the x-files yes uh, i was listening i've been i started listening to a lot of x-files podcasts hoping for the best and i got the worst they're really bad you could start your own i couldn't start my own okay uh, i don't have time to i know start my own it's like uh, I got I got grad school and Patrick's got pizza. Yeah, <laughs> it's my it's my it's my life's passion, Jim. I know <laughs> my life's my life's passion is to work fifty four hours a week at a pizza place. Uh, nothing uh, wrong with that. People need to eat. It's true. I'm helping people. I'm really <laughs> I'm really changing lives out of there. Of course. So yeah, that's all I've been watching. Uh, I saw Paranorman today, but I think I'll save that for the Friedkin episode because I don't know if I'm going to get to have another one. Uh, I don't know if I'm getting to get to see another non-Friedkin movie before mm. we were that. Yeah. No, that's cool. That's cool. They're, uh, yeah. I, I did, uh, I'm excited to talk to Live and Die in L.A. again. I just, oof, god damn, is that good. Really excited to talk that movie. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I've never seen Cruisin' before, so this, this'll be nice. I mean, it's very rare that, you know, a lot of the directors we talk about on the show, I've seen most of the movies before. They're mostly rewatches, you know? So it'll be fun to talk about a movie that I've never seen uh, for the yep. first time. Be, mm-hmm. a, be an excellent episode. So, uh, yeah, well, that'll about wrap it up, folks. Um, you know, we'll try and uh, think of another cool topic for a future bonus episode, maybe around the holidays or something, or around Halloween, maybe, or something, you know? We'll come up with something cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, guys. Please uh, stay tuned for uh, the next uh, official episode on William Friedkin, which will be coming out next week. Uh, and visit us, as always, at directorsclubpodcast.com. Send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter is DC Podcast, and I am at Instant Jim. I'm at Patrick Rapole. And uh, if you want to find me at Letterboxd, you certainly can at Instant Gym as well. Okie doke. That'll about wrap it up. So thanks again for listening, guys. We'll see you real soon. Goodbye. you want to do this let's do it let's let's have sex okay let's have audio sex let's audio talk about sex. sex they just like <laughs> seeing men they like seeing men squeeze through grates and they're just like oh god yeah <laughs> eat, eat that fucking liver <laughs>